0: Peter switches his focus from one's creed to one's conduct, beginning in 1 Peter 2.11. He proceeds to apply the doctrinal truths of salvation, obedience, holiness, and love to those who are scattered, suffering, and slandered. In verse 11-17, through 17, he demonstrated to us how to apply the doctrines of holiness and obedience while living as aliens and strangers in a pagan culture and under a corrupt government. Continuing his exhortation on submission, he moves from the realm of government to the realm of employment in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, our text for today. Later, Peter will deal with submission in the realm of family, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, and the church, 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5. Not only are we to submit to hostile and corrupt governments, but we are to submit to workplace authorities whether they are good or evil, because of the salvation that we have been given. As such, we are called to be suffering, submissive servants, following the example of Christ, the suffering, submissive servant. As we begin with verses 18 to 20, let's consider that believers are suffering, submissive servants. Believers are suffering, submissive servants. Verse 18 to 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Scriptures dealing with servitude or slavery are often complicated for those in the United States because of our history with slavery. However, we cannot exegete or apply scriptures based on Western civilization's worldviews. Sadly, many founders of the United States imposed their worldviews on Scripture Resulting in interpretations that devalued and enslaved an entire ethnicity. For example, many alleged Christian clergy, and I emphasize the word alleged, have used the Genesis 9 account to justify racism and to support the enslaving of an entire geographically related population. The idea that the curse of servitude placed upon Ham's son Canaan was realized in the enslavement of sub-Saharan Africans in the United States. According to the Dictionary of Christianity in America, quote, "...the antebellum South used the philological argument that Japheth's name could mean whiteness and Ham's name dark, hot, and black." The story was used by pro- pro-slavery advocates to legitimize the enslavement of sub-Saharan Africans. Quote. Regrettably, the church's role in the prop- propagation of the evils of slavery and racism in the United States are still being felt today. Now, to properly exegete scriptures dealing with servitude or slavery, it's necessary to understand the issue of slavery in the Roman Empire. Slavery in the Roman Empire cannot be viewed through the lens of slavery in the United States. There are several critical distinctions between slavery in the United States and slavery within the Roman Empire it should be underscored that Scripture nowhere commends slavery as a social structure. Slavery was not instituted or ordained by God. It was strictly a human invention. While Peter and Paul taught that Christian slaves should be obedient to their masters, their statements should not be taken as an endorsement of slavery for two reasons. First, the Roman Empire's view of slavery had drastically shifted during the first century AD. People were not enslaved based on their ethnicity. Some were enslaved as prisoners of war. Many, however, placed themselves into slavery, creating an employment relationship with their masters. It was how one made a living during the first century AD. Slaves often lived better than those who were free. Author A. Ruprecht states, quote, the living conditions of many slaves were better than those of free men who often slept in the streets of the city or lived in very cheap rooms. There's considerable evidence to suggest that the slaves lived within the confines of their master's house. They usually lived on the top floor of their owner's city house or country villa. The quarters for slaves were considered attractive enough to be used for the entertainment of overnight guests. The slave was not inferior to the free men of similar skills in regard to food and clothing," End quote. Under the Roman Empire, slaves were granted many legal rights, including the right to marry, have a family, and own property. They were well-educated and served in various specialized jobs such as doctors, teachers, musicians, and artists. And with the help of their masters, slaves could purchase their freedom through a process called manumission, manumission. Most, if not all, slaves were emancipated by the age of 30. And once emancipated, they became citizens, and their former masters acted as their patron to help them transition into independent living. In fact, slaves often became wealthier than their former masters. Second reason for Peter and Paul's statements not being considered an endorsement of slavery, second reason is that the obedience, the um, encouragement to obey their masters was to safeguard the testimony of Christ. Ephesians 6, 5 and 8. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. First Timothy 6, 1-2. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefits are believers and beloved. Now, Rome viewed Christ as a revolutionary who came to overthrow the Roman Empire. Hence, the apostles encouraged obedience to various social structures so that the early church did not give credence to Rome's view of Christ or be accused of stirring up a rebellion. And while slaves were to be obedient, masters were exhorted to treat their slaves justly and gently, Ephesians 6, 9. And masters do the same thing to them and give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Colossians 4.1. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Paul also encouraged slaves to to seek manumission. 1 Corinthians 7.21. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that as well paul exhorted the church to treat those who were free and enslaved as equals 1 corinthians 12:13 for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether jew or greek whether slave or free and we were all made to drink of one spirit colossians 3:11 there is no distinction between greek and jew circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian scythian Slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. That Peter addresses his readers here in verse 18 as servants indicates that not only were they scattered, suffering, and slandered, they were also servants or slaves. Now, the term servants here is different from the term bond slave used in verse 17. A bond slave, a doulas, is an individual who serves the will of another. A servant, oiketes, is a steward or domestic who's responsible for running a household. And likely, these scattered Jewish believers had sold themselves into slavery due to economic hardships. Now, before delving into this text, it's critical to understand how scriptures, conditioned by cultures, such as those relating to servants and masters, should be applied today. Ray Zuck states, quote, some situations or commands pertain to cultural settings that are only partially similar to ours, and in which only the principles are transferable. Some situations or commands pertain to cultural settings with no similarities, but in which the principles are transferable. While servants and masters are pertain to Roman culture, there are principles that can be applied to believers today. These principles can be applied first and foremost to working relationships between employers and employees. Beyond that, Principles can be applied to any situation where someone is under another's authority within the social realm. Now notice it says that servants are to be submissive to their masters. Masters denotes individuals who have authority over another person. Hence, in the 21st century world in which we live, one's master would be the equivalent to one's employer. And notice it says servants are to be submissive. Submissive is the same term previously used with human government. It means to place oneself under another in an orderly fashion. The passive voice of this verb indicates that individuals place themselves willingly under those in authority. In other words, believer, you and I are to willingly place ourselves under those who have authority over us, whether it be government or whether it be employer. Now these servants or employees were to submit to the authority of their masters with all respect. The term respect, phobos, is the same term used again in verse 17 and translated as fear. It's a reverence that moves a child to obey their parents. Servants or employees must willingly submit to those in authority with the same reverence a child has for a parent. Now that Peter has just stated in verse 17 that believers are to honor all men and fear God indicates that this fear or reverence is not towards the employer's but rather as employees believers that's you and I are to honor our employers by obeying them out of reverence for God again Ephesians 5 or excuse me Ephesians 6 verse 5 through 8 slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with what fear and trembling as to Christ as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. So when it says that we are to submit to our masters, our employers, those in authority over us with all respect, it's not necessarily respect for them. We're to honor them with obedience, but with respect for our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Now you need to ask yourself, do you honor or obey those in authority over you or not? And if you do obey them, why? Do you obey them out of reverence for God, fear of God? reverence for your Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you obeying them for out of eye service? Are you just simply obeying so that you can get a pat on the back so that they can think, oh, what a great guy or great gal you are? See, Christian, regardless of whether it's the government or it's your employer or whoever's in authority over you within the social realm, we are to obey them Out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ and no other reason. And it behooves us to examine our motivations for why we do what we do. The text goes on to say the servant must submit to all masters, the good and the gentle, as well as the unreasonable. Now to be good and gentle describes some employers as virtuous and tolerant, okay? So we're to willingly place ourselves under the authority of those who are virtuous and tolerant. Unreasonable translates the Greek term scolios, which we derive the medical term scoliosis. Scoliosis is a condition by which one's spine is twisted or crooked. Hence the term refers to those employers who are crooked immoral, and unscrupulous, and we're to submit, willingly place ourselves under, not just the good and the gentle, but the crooked, immoral, and unscrupulous as well. Now, we must underscore the fact that submission to such individuals does not include being dishonest immoral, or unscrupulous ourselves. Submission involves complying only with legitimate requests from unreasonable employers. Again, we need to ask ourselves, have we willingly placed ourselves under the authority of another person with the right attitude? Even when they're crooked or immoral, or unscrupulous. You know, it's easy to willingly place ourselves under someone who is virtuous and tolerant, good and gentle. But how much more difficult is it to place ourselves under the authority of someone who is crooked, immoral, and scrupulous? I'll tell you right now, your natural reaction is to rebel against such a person. And yet scripture says that you are to willingly place yourselves under their authority. Is that what you're doing? Is that what you've done? Now in verse 19... The use of the term persons enlarges the discussion to include anyone who experiences unjust suffering, not only from employers, but also the government. You see, believers who submit to unjust suffering find favor or grace before God. But notice this. Finding favor is conditional. If for the sake of conscience towards God. That's a first-class conditional statement that assumes the statement to be true. We've seen before in first-class conditional statements that the if can be translated as since. Conscience here means to know or be aware of something. Thus, the phrase can be translated as since they are aware of God's will. In other words, believers who submit to unjust suffering find favor before God since they are aware or know God's will. So the question now is, what is God's will as an employee or as a citizen? His will is that you bear up under sorrow when suffering unjustly. Bears up under means to endure with courage. Sorrows refers to grief or emotional trauma. Suffering is to be subjected to punishment. Unjustly denotes that the punishment was undeserved or without reason. You see, instead of responding with anger or rebellion, God's will is for you and me to endure the grief and trauma with courage. And then He will give favor to us... Who endure injustices and receive punishment without reason. And that favor or grace is the strength to endure the pain. Now, can you honestly say that you obey God's will in that regard? Can you honestly say that when you suffer unjustly, that you bear up under it, that you endure it with courage? that you take the grief, you take the trauma and bear up under it? Or is your natural tendency to respond with anger and rebellion? Friends, the only people receiving grace to endure unjust suffering are those who are obedient to His will. And in this case, that is bearing up under the sorrow when suffering unjustly. Now, on the other hand, in verse 20, Peter states that if a believer suffers punishment for a just cause, there's no grace to find. See, there's no credit or honor in being harshly treated for doing wrong. The text says, do what is right. That means behave appropriately. And it's inferred here that there is to be no sympathy. There is to be no praise for a believer who suffers or is punished for misbehaving. We we laud them. We we elevate them. Oh, look at that. That's wonderful. They got angry. They rebelled. They're our hero. And the Bible says, no. No. They don't get any grace from God. They're being punished, and they deserve the punishment because they did not behave appropriately. God's grace is reserved only for those who do what is right, suffer for it, and patiently endure it. Again, suffer means to be subject to punishment, and patiently endure means to endure with courage. So believer, you need to examine yourself. Examine your relationship with those who are in authority over you. And consider why you're obeying them. Are you obeying them to be pleasing? Are you obeying them to get a pat on the back, to be praised, to be honored, to be lauded? Or are you obeying them out of reverence or fear for God? And then, if the occasion arises that you're under the authority of someone who is corrupt, if you're under the authority of someone who is immoral, someone who is evil, unscrupulous, you still have to honor them. You still have to obey them. And if you suffer under them, endure it with courage Don't get angry and rebel. And here's why. Verses 21 to 25, we have the example of Christ. See, Christ is the suffering, submissive servant. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. First Peter 2, 21-25. See, believer, you and I are to willingly endure injustice for two reasons. First, we have been called or summoned to suffering. John fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3. So that no one be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So first, we've been called to suffering. Second, Christ suffered setting an example for you and me to follow. The term example Hupogramas is used only here in verse 21 and it's borrowed from the world of education. According to F.F. Bruce, the term example refers to the faint outlines of letters which were traced over by pupils learning to write, then also of the set of letters written at the top of a page or other piece of writing material to be copied by the learner on the rest of the page. As a child traces his letters, believers are to trace or follow in Christ's steps. And following in his steps pictures a child walking in their parents' footsteps, following behind step by step. Believer, do you know that you're called to suffer? See, we have a mentality that says, I don't want to suffer. And we do everything and anything we can do to escape the suffering. But the reality is, He has called us to suffer. Suffering is going to come into our life. We cannot avoid it forever. It's going to come. And how you deal with it will speak volumes as to your relationship with your Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Are you following in His steps? Are you stepping in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, or are you going your own way? See, the way of rebellion, the way of anger, that's not the way of Christ. We're going to see the way of Christ. Peter identifies Jesus as the suffering, submissive servant of Isaiah 53, and outlines several areas in which you and I must follow His example. One, Jesus suffered, but not for any sins he committed. Peter quotes Isaiah 53 verse 9, who committed no sins. As 1 John 3, 5 tells us, Jesus lived a sinless life, and in him there is no sin. Theologically, Christ's sinlessness is known as impeccability. That is, he was not able to sin. Now, believer, you and I are going to endure suffering but it should not be due to sin on our part. Remember, if you suffer because you didn't behave correctly, that's on you. Two, Jesus lived a life of sincerity and suffered injustice. Again, Peter quotes Isaiah 53, 9. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now, we are not sinless, But according to Philippians 1.10, we are to strive to be sincere and blameless so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Sincerity is honesty in attitude and speech. Blameless means to live in a manner that does not promote sin. See, any suffering we experience should be unjust. Any suffering you experience from Authorities in this world should be unjust. It shouldn't be justified because you've been insincere or you've been sinful. We should not be guilty of any attitude or action that would justify our suffering. Three, though suffering, Jesus did not resort to slander. Peter quotes Isaiah 53, verse 7 being reviled, he did not revile in return. Now Peter was an eyewitness to the slander that Jesus endured from the soldiers, the Sanhedrin, and the statesmen, Luke 23, to 5, 10-11. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And for all the slander, Jesus remained silent. Matthew 27, 12, and 14. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed." Luke 23, 9. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. He could have struck down his enemies with a thought. Instead, Jesus acted selflessly, selflessly surrendering his rights. And my friends, you and I must be selfless, surrender our rights, and not retaliate with insults when slandered. And yet, that seems to be the nature of Christians in this country. That when they're quote unquote suffering or being slandered under an authority unjustly, their response is to call them all kinds of names and derogatory remarks and the such. And that is sin. We're to follow the example of Jesus. Number four. Jesus did not threaten to retaliate. Peter again quotes Isaiah 53, 7. Suffering, he uttered no threats. Instead of seeking vengeance, Jesus endured the suffering and prayed for his enemies to be forgiven. Luke twenty-three thirty-four, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Though some may believe this was strictly a function of Christ's divinity, consider Stephen's example. Acts 7, verse 60. Then falling on his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. On the precipice of death, suffering excruciating pain from stoning, Stephen prays for his oppressors instead of threatening them. See, believer, we are to pray for our enemies, not threaten to hurt them or malign them. Five. Jesus willingly submitted to suffering, knowing it was God's will. In the phrase, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, Peter is referencing Psalm 31, verse 5, which Jesus spoke from the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Christ's suffering was divinely ordained, Acts 2, 23. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hand of godless men and put him to death. By continually entrusting himself to the righteous judge, Jesus knew that the Father would vindicate him by raising him from the dead and restoring his glory. You see, like Christ, believer, you and I have been predestined to suffer. First Thessalonians 3.3 3. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for affliction. You and I must willingly to submit to whatever suffering God ordains for our life. We can entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father knowing that as the righteous judge He will correct every wrong and take vengeance on those who do evil. So friend, let me ask you something. When you're suffering under an unjust authority, how are you responding? First, Are you suffering because you've done something to deserve it? If so, you need to repent. Second, are you living a life of sincerity or not? Are you living a life of sincerity? Are you honest in your attitude and speech? Three, are you resorting to slander When you suffer, are you resorting to slander? Four, are you threatening to retaliate? Five, or are you willing to submit to whatever God brings into your life? The ultimate means of Jesus' suffering was the cross. Now typically the term cross translates the Greek term staros, However, the term translated as cross in verse 24 is zulan, meaning tree. And Peter uses the term tree as an allusion to Deuteronomy 21, 22-23, which states, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. The implication then <clears throat> is that Jesus endured God's curse when he hung upon the cross and died. Alluding to Isaiah 53.12, Peter states that when Jesus hung upon the cross, he himself bore our sins in his body. The term bore and a pharaoh is used in the Septuagint to translate two Hebrew terms, naze and halah, the use of naze in Isaiah 53.12 means to endure something unpleasant on the behalf of another. Isaiah 53.12, Yet he himself bore Neze, the sin of many. He endured the unpleasantness of sin on behalf of many and interceded for the transgressor. The term chela means to bring her off a sacrifice. Genesis 8.20, Noah built an altar to the Lord "'Took of every clean animal and every clean bird "'and offered halah, or excuse me, hela "'burn offerings on the altar.'" See, God's holiness and justice demanded that a sacrifice for sin must be made to assuage His wrath. Jesus offered up Himself as that sacrifice and endured the suffering on behalf of humanity. His sacrifice procured salvation for all who repent and believe. And as well, His sacrifice set a pattern for you and me to follow when suffering. By bearing the sins of humanity, God the Father transferred to God the Son the penalty of sin, death. How Christ accomplished this sacrifice was in His body. Thus, His death was not merely spiritual but physical. He died as a human man for all humanity. At the moment of salvation, we die to sin and live to righteousness. The phrase can literally be rendered that we might be utterly alienated from our sins. You see, being alienated from sin, we are to submit ourselves to God to do His will. And His will is submitting to all authorities, whether good and gentle or immoral and wicked authorities. Peter concludes verse 24 by quoting Isaiah 53, 5, by His wounds you were healed. The term wounds refers to the welts or bruises produced by the blows of a whip. Healed denotes the restoration of divine fellowship through the forgiveness of sins and all the saving benefits which accompany it. You see, Christ is the ultimate example of the suffering servant. And it was through His sufferings that you and I have received the forgiveness of sins. In verse 25, Peter alludes to Isaiah 53, 6, For you were continually strained like sheep. Prior to salvation, believers were like sheep. We were constantly straying from our shepherd, going our own way. You know, when a sheep is lost, it is confused, and it eventually lies down waiting for the shepherd to find it. The sheep has no means of finding its own way back to the shepherd. Sheep are completely dependent on their shepherd for their day-to-day care. The verb have returned is passive, indicating that sheep do not return on their own someone else returns them to the flock. And Peter hears recalling Jesus' parable of the lost sheep. Though only one is lost, the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep in the fold to find the one lost. In the case of believers, you and me, Christ has sought out each one of us and brought us into His fold. And as such, He is our shepherd and guardian. The phrase shepherd and guardian is an allusion to the Septuagint translation of Ezekiel 34, 11 to 14, where God promises to regather his scattered sheep. It says, look, I shall seek out my sheep and watch over them. The word watch there, episkami, is the same word translated here as guardian. Just as the shepherd seeks his flock on the day when there is darkness and a cloud, I will seek out my sheep. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countries. The term watch in Ezekiel 34 verse 11 means to guard or oversee. Peter rightly applies this prophecy to Jesus, the shepherd and guardian. The term shepherd depicts Jesus as providing for the welfare of his flock. Guardian describes him as guarding or protecting his flock. You see, Jesus is always providing for and protecting us. Even when we are scattered, suffering, and slandered. And knowing this, we can patiently endure unjust treatment from the government or in the workplace. My friends, the American way is to stand up and fight when one's rights are violated by their employer. But this is not God's way. Peter explains that God's way is for you and I to identify whether or not the individual tr- who is treating us unjustly is in authority over us. If that person who is mistreating you is in authority over you, then you must examine whether or not you are demonstrating a proper attitude of submission. Now the question arises, then do we have any biblical grounds for self-defense against unjust treatment, or for confronting the errors of those in authority. Now, some would go to the extreme and erroneous view that we must always endure injustice in silence and that self-defense is in the wrong. However, one needs only to look at the example of Jesus and, quote, follow in his steps. In John 8, the Jewish leaders attacked Jesus' divine character and authority. They implied that His birth was illegitimate, that He was demon-possessed, and that He lied about who He was. In this situation, Jesus did not suffer in silence. Instead, He defended Himself and accused the religious leaders of being children of the devil. Now, obviously, there must be a balance between these two very different examples by Christ. On the one hand, He remained silent before His accusers, and on the other hand, vigorously attacked His accusers. Several axioms can be set forth by comparing these two different examples. First, we must patiently endure unjust treatment if the person attacking is in authority over us. I'll state that again. We must patiently endure unjust treatment if the person attacking is in authority over us. When Christ was on trial, He was under the Sanhedrin soldiers and statesmen's authority. In that case, He patiently endured their unjust treatment. Upon those occasions where Christ defended Himself and attacked His accusers, they were not in a position of authority over Him. When attacked, we need to examine whether or not we have done something to provoke our authority, whether it's our employer or our government officials or whoever. If we have done something wrong, then we deserve the punishment. And if we are innocent, then we need to bide our time and absorb the injustice. Second, we must respond when God's character or authority is questioned or ridiculed. We must respond when God's character or authority is questioned or ridiculed. In the John 8 situation, Christ's character and authority were attacked. In turn, Christ vigorously defended himself and attacked his enemy. During his trial, Christ remained silent until the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are Christ, the Son of God, Matthew twenty six sixty three. Because the character and authority of God was questioned, Jesus could not remain silent. And notice how he replied by quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel 7, verse 13. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I will tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Third, we must guard our witness in the workplace. We must guard our witness in the workplace. Certainly we can appeal unjust treatment, albeit with a submissive, not arrogant attitude. However, if the appeal, if the appeal fails, we must submit. Submitting to injustice and surrendering one's rights communicates the character of Christ to to our unbelieving co-workers and bosses. As well, you can choose to seek employment elsewhere. But consider these two caveats as we close. If you're harboring a defiant attitude, I would suggest you stay and learn to patiently endure. And caveat number two, if you leave too soon, you may miss God's purpose for your suffering. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this difficult text, this text on surrendering to suffering, to being submissive servants. It's not in our nature to serve. It's not in our nature to be submissive. It's not in our nature to shut our mouths and swallow when we're treated unjustly. But Father, I pray that we can learn this lesson. Peter learned it. We remember a young Peter, Lord, who grabbed his fish knife and sliced off the ear of one who was attacking his Lord. And yet, by your grace, he grew beyond that man into a man who knew when to keep his mouth shut, when to suffer, when to submit, but also when to speak up and defend. So Father God in heaven, I pray to that end, you might help us as your servants, whether it's in our workplace or with our government or whatever authority you may have place over us, that Father, we would respond like your son that we would be noted for our integrity, that, Lord, we would be a people who are sincere and blameless, not having any reason to be punished. And that, Father, if that punishment should come, if that suffering should come, may it be unjust, may it be without cause. And, Father, if we are in that position of suffering, may we do it in silence, without threatening, so that the testimony of your Son might be proclaimed. That, Father, we might see unbelievers come to salvation, come to repentance and faith through our testimony. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.